on the programme, Harold Bloom, Portrait of a Literary Critic. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. There is no single way to read well, though there is a prime reason why we should read. We read not only because we cannot know enough people, but because friendship is so vulnerable, so likely to diminish or disappear, overcome by space, time, imperfect sympathies and all the sorrows of familial and passional life. The words of Harold Bloom there from the introduction to his book How to Read and Why, first published in 2000. Bloom, one of the most original, influential and controversial literary critics of the past five decades, has written extensively on Shakespeare, Yeats, Joyce, Beckett and the 26 writers he chose to represent the Western canon of literature in his celebrated book The Western Canon. Bloom is credited with the concept of The Anxiety of Influence, the book of the same title from 1973, creating its own anxieties, oppositions and influences ever since. As a critic and writer on literature, religion and poetry, Harold Bloom has never been afraid of controversy, speaking his mind on political correctness, feminist and Marxist theories and the many isms of postmodern critical thought. His forthright expression of his opinion has not always endeared him to fellow academics or to some writers. Now in his early 80s, Harold Bloom continues to write and to teach at Yale University. We visited him recently at his home in New Haven. In person, he's charming, bossy, warm, endearing. Graduate students come and go. The phone keeps ringing. Oh, excuse me. I will get rid of this very quickly, okay. son. Dear Vincent, I was Angus, the best critic in North America. I've had... Magnificent Angus Fletcher, I am sitting here being introduced, <laughs> uh, being introduced, being interviewed, and we are talking about Yeats at the moment. Do you have thoughts about Yeats you wish to impart? <laughs> this is the author of many great books. Ah, yes, yes, but I don't like that poem, Angus, there. That's the, that's the elegy for yes. himself. Yes, yes it is. Sure. Irish whiskey is welcomed and enjoyed. Everyone is called dear or child, even me. And the keen, open, searching mind is constantly at work. Harold Bloom, can we talk a little about poetry as, as a kind of pulse in your life? Uh, Seamus Heaney has said, very simply and wisely, Poetry helps us live. A lovely man, Seamus. I have not seen him or his beautiful wife in some years now. I remember reviewing him very early on in the Times Literary Supplement. What was the volume called? Was it Fieldwork? It was Fieldwork. And saying this was someone who could not miss. I'd, I'd followed the previous books, but I thought that was a kind of breakthrough for him. But he's a stunning poet. I think the three poets alive now in the English language, not necessarily in that order of eminence, but of almost equal evidence, are Seamus, that dour and remarkable man, Mr. Geoffrey Hill, and my close friend John Ashbury, whose new volume has just come out and with whom I had a lovely phone conversation yesterday. But those, I would think, are without match at this time. What has poetry meant to you in your life? I think you fell in love with it when you were a young boy. I first started to read Yiddish poetry 
when I was six and seven years old. I didn't know any English yet, even though I'd been born and raised in the East Bronx in New York City in the early 1930s. I first fell in love with the poetry of the remarkable modern Yiddish poet Moshe Leib Halpern and some of the others like Yaakov Glotstein and so on. And I think the first poet in English after I taught myself to read English whom I really came to care for was in fact Shakespeare, but I'm not sure I had any clear notion of what it was that I was reading when I read Hamlet or Macbeth in those days when I was nine or ten years old. But then when I was ten or eleven, I discovered Hart Crane in the Melrose branch of the Bronx Public Library and fell in love with his poetry, though I certainly had no way of understanding it. That high invocatory strain captured me and swept me in even though the complexities of the syntax and the exalted nature of the vision were really beyond me. I always quote, probably I overquoted, the other great modern American poet, well, there are also, of course, Mr. Frost, and if you like him, the abominable Eliot, and a few others like Marianne Moore and my old friend Elizabeth Bishop, now long gone. But um, there's a wonderful sentence of Wallace Stevens in prose. Poetry is one of the enlargements of life. It's a very carefully weighted sentence. He's not saying it's the ultimate enlargement of life or the only enlargement of life, but it is one of the enlargements. I think I'm willing to go go by that. Though I've, he doesn't, of course, mean enlargement in the sense of taking a photograph and enlarging it. He means something rather more inward, I would trust. A kind of illumination of life. Yes, a kind of illumination. Two books... Um Hart Crane, Complete Poems and Selected Letters on the Table and uh, John T. Irwin's Hart Crane's Poetry. Do, do you turn again now to, to Crane? Well, I'm writing a book at the moment called The Daimon, D-A-E-M-O-N. The Daimon Knows How It Is Done. And the subtitle is Hidden Tradition in American Literature. In an early notebook of Ralph Waldo Emerson, there is a remarkable sentence cut off from the paragraph before it or the paragraph after, simply remarking cryptically, the daimon knows how it is done. So that gave me my title. And it's a study about the daimonic element, ultimately really in 10 American writers, not necessarily the only American writers or necessarily the 10 best, though I'm sure reviewers will start giving me that. But um. Simply the ten at this point in my rather exhausted life. Besides, I, I teach them all. I, I'm in my 57th consecutive year of full-time teaching here at Yale, and uh, I'm a little tired, I must admit, but still the students sustain me. Do you learn in, in teaching, uh, and it has oh, been yes, such yes, a part yes. of your life? No, that, that, that Well, I always give one. Uh, after getting over this terrible illness four years ago, I lay in bed in a horrible rehab place, for seven weeks, I wasn't allowed to get up. I would have fallen if I tried to stand on my feet. And um, I vowed that I would go on teaching until I got carried out for the last time. And that I would, I would give two groups of a dozen each, no more, than, no more children than that, just ten young men and young women in each, six and six, or whatever it worked out as. One always on Shakespeare, though no longer trying to do all of Shakespeare the way I used to, but selected so I could spend many, many weeks on particular um, players and the other on poetry. And for a while, um, I did courses in the four 20th century poets in English who mean most to me, 
Yeats, D.H. Lawrence, Wallace Stevens, Hart Crane. But more recently, I've done American only, um, though I miss both Lawrence and Crane uh, and, and Yeats. Um, this first semester that just ended, I um, taught um, some Emerson, not poetry, but prose as background to Whitman. And then we did um, five meetings on Walt Whitman, three on Moby Dick, which is, after all, an elaborate and vast prose poem, and four meetings on Emily Dickinson. But this second semester, I'm indulging myself. Seven meetings on Wallace Stevens and five on Hart Crane. Indeed, there is the noble Stevens there. And the noble Dickinson. Ah, yes, Miss Dickinson of Amherst, the only attested portrait of that extraordinary person. It would be six and six, except that unforgivably Crane, in effect, murdered himself by drowning himself in the Caribbean at the age of 32. Absolutely unforgivable. Who knows what he would have written. But never mind, losses of that kind are always terrible. Thus, I think Keith Douglas would have been a major poet, but he dies at just 22 or 23, soon after the invasion of Normandy, leaving behind some remarkable poems. You mentioned Yeats as, as one of the poets whose work means most to you. And, of course, this your famous and celebrated, rightly celebrated book on I Yeats have, from I 1970. I Yeats by heart, I think. I, as I walk around with my trainer, just to keep myself going, I either pronounce it to myself internally or externally. And in the middle of the night, I can hear poems by Hart Crane and by Yeats in particular go through my head, sometimes Stevens, sometimes passages from Shakespeare. I may never teach Yeats again, I suppose, but I will miss it. I will miss it. And almost certainly, I mean, much as I love Stevens and Crane and Lawrence at his very best in the last poems, Thomas Hardy, a few others, the greatest poet of the English language since Browning and Tennyson would be William Butler Yeats. Astonishing in every way. Is there a particular Yeats poem that returns to you more than, than others? I know you've written beautifully about Kukulun Comfort. It's the great, it's the great double po- poem of Byzantium. That is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song, the salmon falls, the mackerel, crowded seas, fish, flesh, or fowl, commend all summer long, whatever is begotten, born, or dies, caught in that sensual music or neglect, monuments of an aging intellect but if I recite the two poems together it will take up too much of our time but it's beautiful oh I, it's very hard to stop the other is the greater of the two very definitely the greater of the two um, the Byzantium poem uh, proper but especially there are certain moments in, at midnight on the emperor's pavement flit flames that no faggot feeds nor steel has lit Flames begotten of flame, where blood begotten spirits come, dying into a dance, an agony of trance, an agony of flame that cannot singe a sleeve, a straddle on the dolphins, mire and blood, spirit after spirit, the smithies break the flood, the golden smithies of the emperor. Marbles of the dancing floor break bitter furies of complexity, those images that yet fresh images beget, that dolphin torn, that gong tormented sea. The sheer rhetorical power of that is unmatchable. When you were writing your book on, on Yeats, did you spend much time in Ireland? I know you visited more than once. 
Yes, I, I, I did. I went, uh, I went to Sligo, I went to Cork, I was in Dublin on Marion Square. I couldn't bear to go there, and I'm told that some of the best Georgian buildings were long ago torn down and replaced by glass. Horrors. How could they do that to those beautiful squares? Alas, alas, alas. Some of the squares are still intact. There's still a lot of Georgian Dublin there. I mean, there's yeah. enough to enough to enjoy and celebrate yeah. and 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 see the glory of what was. There's, yeah. there's still uh, well, wild Dublin is still there. Was in the summer of 1951. I was in a summer school in Edinburgh, and that's when I first travelled to Dublin with some friends, and was enchanted by it. Thought it was a very troubled city. There were all sorts of disorders still going on, but then it has a troubled history. I'm sure many people have commented on um, the rather marvellous link between your name and that of Leopold Bloom. I teach regularly, though not for the last five years. I used to teach regularly that greatest, uh, I think, of, well, except for the wake. The two greatest works are in English in the 20th century, rivaled only by Proust, really, and perhaps two or three poets like Valéry or Georg Trock or one or two others, and Yeats, um, would be the wake and uh, Ulysses. But every time I have taught the book, I tell the students at the beginning, we are to refer to him as Poldi, lovely fellow that he is, since his real name is Virago Zambavi, and I feel that he has permanently usurped my splendid name. But he is wonderful, isn't he? He is, even though Joyce may not have intended this, an incredibly lovable person. Maybe he did intend it, who knows? Joyce is so diverse and complex. When did you first read Joyce and, and become aware of that, I suppose, again, that I almost was, poetic I, I coincidence of naming. A little later, I, I was in high school, I was 13 or 14 in New York City and was fascinated by Ulysses, simply by the language. I remember falling in love with that magnificent opening. Stately, plump, Buck Mulligan, and even more, a little bit further on, totally swept away by, at one point, with the Opsian. I got to know him eventually because we drank together at the White Horse Tavern in New York during his long, drunken exile. Oliver Sinjin Gogarty, a nasty man. Joyce was quite right about that. Terrible cadger and codger and sort of nudnik in every way. Though he did write that wonderful book called As I Was Going Down Sackville Street, which I enjoyed greatly. But there's a marvelous moment in the Nighttown sequence where suddenly wearing a jester's costume. I don't know whether he's standing on a pillar or a ladder, but the buck appears and he cries out as the apparition of Mrs. Dedalus rises up. She's beastly dead. The pity of it. Kinch killed her dog's body, bitch body. Mulligan meets the afflicted mother, Mercurio Molokai. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that stunning? My friend Edna O'Brien and I have chanted that aloud to one another. I miss Edna. Do you know Edna? She's a wonderful woman. Oh, she's so beautiful. Does she still always wear a rose? Quite often, I think. She's, she will always I was always falling elegant. in love with her again. Every time I've seen Edna, if she hears this broadcast, beautiful creature, allow me to send you my love. Such a person in every way. And a great short story writer. Yes. And a fascinating novelist, but... I think, he won't like my saying this, but I like her stories even better. 
I had been thinking about this trinity of Irish writers about whom you'd written so elegantly and eloquently, Wilde, um, Yeats. Beckett. And Beckett. It has yeah. to be Beckett, yes. yes. Now, the four greatest writers of the 20th century, setting the poets aside, and they would be heralded by Yeats above all, though, as I say, Georg Trocco and Paul Valéry and Stevens and Hart Crane and a few others would belong there, but um, and some of the Russians, of course, Mandelstam. But the four greatest writers of the 20th century, exclusive of the poets, not necessarily in that order, but perhaps in that order, are indeed uh, James Joyce, Marcel Proust, Franz Kafka, Samuel Beckett. Beckett I actually knew in New York City and also in Paris, the most humane and gentle and humorous and charming person imaginable. The others were all before my time. But he lasted a long time, Beckett, into his 80s. Yes. You described Beckett as heroic. Unassuming, very gentle, a curiously lyrical personality. I spent some time in various bars in Paris when we talked. He could drink a fair amount, but then in those days I could also, being much younger, really very forceful, though. He had what Dr. Johnson praises, which is the faculty or ability to transform opinion into knowledge. That, I think, is as good a criticism of criticism as you could hope to find. Another marvellous critic of criticism, Oscar Wilde. Um, ah, the divine Oscar, yes. I love yeah, your description yeah. of him as the divine Oscar. Ah, yes. Well, the sublime Walter, I always say, of his hero, Peter, and the divine Oscar, yes. Oscar, Oscar is marvellous. I sometimes think that, except for my hero, Sir John Falstaff, post-Shakespeare anyway, the personage I love best in literature is Lady Augusta Bracknell. And of all the marvellous things she says, I like best towards the end. Come, Gwendolyn, we have missed five, or is it six trains already? To miss any more might expose us to comment upon the platform. The sublime solipsism of that. You, you've described uh, the importance of being earnest as, as a miracle of a play. Oh, it's marvellous, yes. George Bernard Shaw loathed it, but then Shaw's the man who said, magnificent dramatist and mind as he was, but he once actually uttered this incredible sentence, when I consider the mind of William Shakespeare and compare it to my own, I can feel only pity for him. <laughs> <laughs> He attended the first performance of the important and wrote a vicious review of it. We charmers do not love one another. Two very different minds, uh, great though they may have been. I often think about that meeting between... Isn't it interesting that mm. all the drama post-Shakespeare that really matters in English, certainly all the stage comedy, is written by the Irish. Well, there is Wycherley, of course, but he's a rare exception. But Congreve is Irish and Sheridan is Irish. And, of course, Oscar and Shaw and O'Casey... And Singh, who's really better, I think, at comedy than he is in The Darker Vision. So it's an astonishing panoply. I sometimes think about that meeting between Wilde and Walt Whitman when oh, Wilde yes. came to America. No, no, no. I, I'm fascinated. There were two meetings, actually. But the description of the first by... Um, there was this wonderful fellow um, who was taking care of Walt then and who left... Um, what was his name? Horace Traubel, T-R-A-U-B-E-L actually a European Jewish socialist who had domesticated himself in Camden, New Jersey, and New York City. Traubel records that Walt uh, was a little nervous 
because Walt was in a wheelchair and, you know, had strokes and was very old and tired. He'd gotten worn out in his heroic service. 1863 to 1867, whenever he had the strength, he was out on those awful whitewashed sheds, tending the dead, the wounded, the hopelessly maimed, the dying, unpaid volunteer nurse and wound dresser. I feel sometimes we make too much of Lincoln and too little of Whitman. If you want the American hero, I would vote for Walt Whitman. I recently read your book, Fallen Angels. Um, it's not really a book. It's a talk that I gave. Mm. I'd even forgotten it. It was a talk I gave out at Washington University in St. Louis. And a fellow who is now one of the editors, he had then, but he was an editor at Yale then. He is now an editor at uh, John Kolka, K-U-L-K-A. He now is one of the editors of the Harvard University Press. He has absconded from here to there. But he came round and said that he um, had gotten hold of a copy of this. And my old friend Mark Potwal, who is a very good graphic artist, he's deeply influenced by Chagall, clearly. Mark had been after me uh, to do something with him on Kafka, and I, I just didn't have time or disposition. And then I thought, well, he loves angels, and I'm fascinated by angels. Otherness is the essence of the angels, but then it is our essence also. That does not mean that the angels are our otherness or that we are theirs. Rather, they manifest an otherness or potential akin to our own, neither better nor worse, but only gradated to a different scale. The Vatican Museum collects angels, piety and self-interest join, and that concern with the Vatican and the American religion alike would not accept is my increasing conviction that all angels by now necessarily are fallen angels from the perspective of the human. Every angel is terrifying, wrote the poet Rilke, who had not confronted a screen upon which John Travolta cavorted as an angel. He did, actually. Oh, I forget what the movie was. What can it mean to contend that no distinction is still possible between unfallen and fallen angels? We are fallen Adam or fallen Eve and Adam, if you prefer, but we no longer are fallen in the Augustinian or traditional Christian sense. As Kafka prophesied, our one authentic sin is impatience. That is why we are forgetting how to read. Impatience increasingly is a visual obsession. We want to see a thing instantly and then forget it. Deep reading is not like that. Reading requires patience and remembering. A visual culture cannot distinguish between fallen and unfallen angels, since we cannot see either and are forgetting how to read ourselves, which means that we can see images of others, but cannot really see either others or ourselves. Did I write that? I don't remember that at all. It's rather spare. It's dark. In the talk, and as so it's published here, The American yes. Religion would show this, because I wrote a strange book called The American Religion, rather weird book, which became a kind of cult book. Because that's what we suffer from in this country. We call ourselves a Christian nation, but we're not. We have the American religion, which is a strange admixture of ancient Gnosticism, 17th century enthusiasm with a capital E, and various 
peculiar American heresies, very American indeed, which mostly came out of the hothouse of 19th century America and are still with us in these strange faiths like the Latter-day Saints or Mormons, where, thank heavens, we have just evaded a terrible fate, and the Seventh-day Adventists, who are very strange, and the Christian scientists who are dying out. And then uh, fascinating, most American of religions, more even perhaps, or as much as the Mormons, the um, Southern Baptist Convention, which has nothing to do with European baptism or Anabaptism, and which was originally quite a remarkable um, libertarian mode of religion, very left-wing Protestant indeed, but which has now been taken over by the modern Southern Baptist Convention who operate out of their papacy in the benign city of Dallas. I wish that the old Confederacy, with a few honorable exceptions which have now seen the light, like Virginia, would just secede. In fact, why even wait for them to secede? Let's expel them from the Union, particularly Texas. We could... Ralph Waldo Emerson was quite right. He prophesied, he opposed the admission of Texas, as a slave state, of course, to the Union, and he prophesied that the admission of Texas would eventually be the ruin and destruction of the United States. It could yet happen. If only we could expel Texas. <laughs> but then I suppose somehow that it would seem that the weight of, of democracy in America in opposition to to that religion that you you know the kind of crazy religion you've talked about seems to balance and 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 so uh, well, something worked. fortunately demographics have now changed i mean i i was in despair about the possibility of obama being reelected particularly because he really has been a disappointment and um he messed up the first debate and so on though the alternative was hideous beyond belief but then what happened and made an enormous difference was that the fascists really did behave like fascists. They campaigned against women, they campaigned against homosexuals, they campaigned against decent emigration rules for Hispanics, they campaigned pretty much against East Asians also, and they certainly had no use for blacks, except for a few Uncle Toms. And of course, our demographics have changed. And there weren't enough angry, aging white men to elect Mitt Romney. <laughs> Let's go back to Yeats or to civilized things or to poetry <laughs> or whatever. I suppose you, you've never been afraid to to speak your mind on in relation to literature, literary criticism. I have more enemies than anyone you know. There are a certain number of friends, and I'm very moved by the fact that every day I, I can't, I never learn to type because I had a tremor from the time I was a child. So my wife handles the email on uh, that computer of hers over there. But almost every day there are very sweet notes that I can only reply to by saying thank you for your kind note. You know, From people all over the world who have read books like The Western Canon or the book on Shakespeare or How to Read a Wire. And, you know, are kind enough to call me their teacher, even though I've never met them and can never meet them. And that helps. But there are enemies galore, literary and journalistic. Their name is Legion. You might call them Gadarene Swine or whatever you wish to call them, but never mind. I'm not fond of them, and they're certainly not fond of me. But they shall be nameless here. When you consider um, 
I suppose, various trends in academia in the last few decades, you know, the various All of them isms. Hideous, yes. Um, All of them have nothing to do with education, nothing to do with the mind, nothing to do with cognitive or aesthetic values. Politics, mere politics, gender politics, skin pigmentation politics, sexual orientation politics, the usual jazz, the usual suspects. But go on, Vincent. No, I was, I was going to ask if, if you feel any of it has had any validity at all or added anything uh, to I'm the sorry. story I, of I, our I, I, I'm, I'm unreconciled. I'm unreconciled. I left the Yale English Department. I was appointed there in September 54. I walked out on them in 1976 and went to the Yale Corporation and said, you must reappoint me a university professor or I'm leaving. And under duress, they did it. So I haven't had colleagues since then. It's a little lonesome sometimes, but it has saved my sanity. But I couldn't stand uh, what was happening even to this university, and this is still a university. Uh, but I... Um, I keep telling my students, and I, I choose one dozen for each of these uh, discussion groups, and from some 80 to 100 applicants, and they are. I get the cream of the cream, lovely people, lovely young men, lovely young women. But I say to them, you know, if you really want humanistic educations, no matter what you plan to be, whether you plan to be lawyers or medical doctors or architects or go to Wall Street or whatever, where you wish to compromise yourself, since we will all compromise ourselves in this dark life. For heaven's sake, don't waste your four years here studying nonsense. Learn Latin. Learn Greek if you can. Learn classical Greek. I, I was an undergraduate classics major at Cornell before I came here as a graduate student in English and took four years of Greek and four of Latin. Learn Italian. Learn Spanish. You know, I, I don't ask for the impossible, don't learn. I don't ask you to learn Hebrew or Chinese or the Gaelic, but, you know, learn learn primary languages because I think it was Goethe who said that if you know only your own language, then you don't even know your own language. And that's, that's what's wrong now with all of these innovations because nobody learns the history of the English language. No one learns to read Latin. Very few of them even learn to read Italian or Spanish. It's it's a bad situation. And that, I mean, education as I understood it was philological. It isn't anymore. Very sad. I'm looking at this mug uh, with an inscription in, in Yiddish which translates as so many books, so little time. Yeah. Yes. So little time, so many books. How many books do you reckon you might have read in your life? Oh, my God. Between this house two-year offices in our huge apartment in New York. I must own nearly 80,000 volumes, and I've read all of them at least once because I won't buy a book or keep a book if it's sent to me unless it's something I want to reread. But I've always had a preternatural rate of speeding read from the time I was a little one. It went away for a while, but now it's come back again in extreme old age, just as I've had this stunning memory, which is of the inner ear. I have to sort of read it out loud, and then I remember it. I suppose a few hundred thousand, I don't know. But everybody does in the course of a long life. People read more than they realize. Mm. I, I'm, I'm not one of those people, even in the age of the screen, who believe that reading is dying. I get too much evidence to the contrary from these endless emails from all over. There are solitary readers among the young everywhere. In Pakistan, even in Iran, in the weirdest places. 
in Korea, in Kashmir. I mean, it's a human impulse, and it doesn't it doesn't die or go away. Has music been important to you over the years? Well, two kinds: the the tradition that goes from Bach and Haydn and Mozart on through Beethoven and Schubert and Mendelssohn and on to Brahms, who's sort of a favorite composer. But beyond that, um, to Schoenberg, to Bartok, to Stravinsky, to Webern, to a few Albenberg, a few others in the 20th century, my late friend, Elliot Carter, just dead at the age of about past 100. I taught his son, I remember, many years ago, and he must be getting to be a bit old now. But American jazz, I mean, first, of course, the great Louis Armstrong, who, you know, if I were asked at any time, who are the American originals who really have contributed to the culture of the world, I would say one Walt Whitman and two Louis Armstrong, quite seriously. After that, I suppose, um, the people I knew best and cared most for when I was a young man, the so-called bop jazz people, Charlie Parker, Charlie Mingus, Gillespie, Thelonious, and the person I got closest to personally, Bud Powell. Have you ever heard Bud Powell? No. I introduced him to the poetry of Hart Crane. I used to go hear him at Minton's, and um, I gave him the collected poems of Hart Crane. There's a frightening, magnificent sort of breakdown piece, because Bud was always breaking down, called Un Poco Loco. And I said it reminded me of Hart Crane's The Broken Tower, an astonishing poem, which opens... The bell rope that gathers God at dawn dispatches me as though I drop down the knell of a spent day to wander the cathedral lawn from pit to crucifix, feet chill on steps from hell, and a little bit further on suddenly cries out in great anguish. The bells, I say, the bells break down their tower and swing I know not where. Their tongues engrave membrane through marrow my long, scattered score of broken intervals, and I their sexton slave, and a little bit further on. And so it was I entered the broken world to trace the visionary company of love, its voice an instant in the wind, but not for long to hold each desperate choice. I told him that's what on Poco Loco always made me think of. And he, he read the poem many times and finally said, yes, he saw what I meant. So let, let's go on to... That wonderful phrase, the visionary company of I, love. I, I usurped it for a very early book on the romantic poets. It must be about 1960 or so. It was a very idealistic and idealizing book. I was fiercely in love with Shelley and Keats and Wordsworth and Blake and... I wanted to impart the love, but I wouldn't want to look at the book now because it would be a very young man's book. Shakespeare, uh, yes. for you, yes, the yes. greatest writer. Well, not just for me, surely. For you, Indeed. for Sarah, for all of us, yes. And something you've written, uh, wisdom you've said to be found in Shakespeare, provided you get at it in the right way. Which means learn to listen to it. Don't come to it with presuppositions. And the two characters you, you come back to time and again. Falstaff uh, and Hamlet. Falstaff and Hamlet. Yes. Um, maybe two of the greatest uh, people that never lived. Or do they live? Of course they live. I was, I was about to gently suggest that I couldn't agree with you as to whether they were, they were more alive than 
I don't know if they're more alive than Sarah is, or you, but they're certainly more alive than I am, since I'm diminishing rapidly. Um, well, Sir John is the vital principle itself. His greatest moment comes on the battlefield when he looks at the corpse of Sir Walter Blunt. Sir Walter Blunt, there's honor for you. I like not such grinning honor as Sir Walter hath. Give me life. Nothing could be finer than that. Give me life. John Ruskin said the only wealth is life. And from the time I was a little boy, I've always interpreted the Hebrew bracha, the blessing, with a capital B, as simply meaning more life, more life. And that obviously doesn't just mean a longer life, a falling into senescence, it means a more exuberant life, a more Falstaffian life. Here comes George Bernard Shaw again. He loathed Falstaff, and he called him a gluttonous sort of wastrel or scoundrel. That isn't the exact phrase. It was a very nasty phrase indeed. But I think he envied Shakespeare the creation of so immensely vital and vitalizing a person, because that's what Sir John is. That's what all of Shakespeare's great figures are. They are full human beings, more human than we are. They are what William Blake taught us to call the human form divine. And of course, Falstaff is Shakespeare's homage to and indebtedness to the only English writer who could ever challenge him, George Chaucer, the magnificent figure of Alice, the wife of Bath. Sort of translating it into our English, I'm suddenly crying out, but I have had my world as in my time. When she says that... um, She has lost so much, but she will still sell what is left over as best she can, and then cries out in exultation, for I have had my world as in my time, which is very Falstaffian. And I think indeed uh, from her using the Pauline notion that she is following her vocation, Shakespeare's Falstaff takes his, "'Tis my vocation, how? "'Tis no sin for a man to labor in his vocation.'" And Hamlet, of course, is William Hazlitt got it right. It is we who are Hamlet. Women and men alike, we are all of us Hamlet. We all of us, our mind, struggling with the prospect, whether imminent or delayed, of annihilation. The rest is indeed silence for him because he knows that whether you take the rest as the remainder or as solace and sleep, that's all there is. Silence. But then I, I differ from most people who write about Shakespeare these days. I think that ultimately the elliptical burden of what he gives us is a breathtaking kind of nihilism, more uncanny than anything that Nietzsche apprehended. I think in the end he, among so much else, telling us that there are no values or value except those that we create or imbue events, people, things with. Emerson beautifully said, no world, there is no next world. Here and now is the whole fact. And I think Hamlet understands that very well indeed, that here and now is the whole fact, or that beautiful phrase, is it a Victor Hugo, that the sublime 
Walter Pater repeats, we have an interval, and then our place knows us no more. But that, I think, is what the highest literature is finally about. I tell my students that appreciation, to use Pater's wonderful word, is what I think our stance towards the highest imaginative literature should be, and that what we have to appreciate are the only values that matter in the highest literature, which are cognitive and aesthetic values, quite cut off from societal and even historical considerations. Immanuel Kant, I think it's in the first critique, says that time and space are indeed appearances and therefore, in a sense, illusory. But nevertheless, he says, there is something noumenal, there is something permanent in those appearances. And I think that you don't need Kant if you have Shakespeare, because Hamlet is, among so much else, telling you that. Our yearning, at least, is transcendental. Do you go back to Shakespeare these days, or or do you try to read new work, new novels, new poetry? I don't go out of my way to read the contemporary. Today's mail hasn't arrived, but there will be a flood tide by about 5 o'clock or 5.30 of unsolicited books floating through that door. My wife, in despair, look at that couch, will say, give us this day our daily book. Um, or books. I try to keep up. I'm a great fan of John Banville, whom I've never met. We have exchanged a few notes. I would love to meet him, but I can't travel anymore. I believe Mr. Banville is younger than I am, and I hope still to meet him. If he ever comes to New York City, we have an apartment there. I can go down and meet him. I love his novel called Athena, which I think is insufficiently appreciated. But at his best, he is, I think, a far better novelist than... I don't want to be invidious at this age. There are some contemporary English novelists who have a great deal of reputation. I read them, but I get very little out of them. It's also true of many of the current American novelists. We have four living novelists in the United States who did very important work, but... Well, there's my friend Philip Roth, but who wrote two great books, Sabbath Theater and American Pastoral, But Philip quite rightly says he won't write any more now because those short recent novels were not Philip, really. There's Don DeLillo, a lovely man who wrote the one splendid book, really, Underworld. There is Cormac McCarthy, a wonderful man, who wrote one shattering novel, Blood Meridian, which I've done all I could to celebrate and written introductions for and so on. But the rest of his work since has not come up to that. Though I say that with sadness. And there is probably our best living, if he's a novelist, I don't know, our best living writer of prose fiction, Thomas Pynchon, whom I've never met, but whom I rather, I don't say I venerate him, but he fascinates me. The great short novel, The Crying of Lot 49, The Wonderful Gravity's Rainbow, and the quite astonishing Mason and Dixon. The others, I think, are not as good. Writers younger than that, they're interesting, some of them, but I I haven't taken them to heart as yet. I try to keep up more with the poets in the United States, and to some extent abroad, but I don't really know the younger Irish poets. 
I pretty much end with the generation. Well, there's my old friend, who actually, I didn't know he was still alive, the splendid Montague, who came out of hibernation to write a rather glowing review of something or other I'd written. It was nice to know that the Montague, that John was still alive. And there's Seamus, of course. There is the rather fierce fellow who's now an American and lives in Princeton, um, his disciple, though he won't like my calling him out, Muldoon, the Muldoon. Very interesting poet, if he's still alive, Mr. Thomas Kinsler. Is he still alive? Underappreciated. There's Derek Mann, who's very good indeed. I'm probably leaving some out. But there are younger ones, and I just don't follow them. Their books don't reach me, or I just don't have time. I don't think much of the British poets after um, Geoffrey Hill. I haven't seen any who have particularly moved me. In this country, there's Henri Cole in that generation. There's the fascinating Canadian lady, Anne Carson. A few others. And some of the great older generation are still alive. My old friends, William Merwin and Mark Strand, and of course, John Ashbery. Though my closest friend, Archie Ammons, A.R. Ammons, is dead now for 11 years. And Jimmy Merrill's dead a long time, and Tony Hector's gone. And my friend John Hollander is alive. Oh, Richard Wilbur is still alive. And Dick is in his 90s. A poet of real lyric distinction and some wisdom, I think. Great translator of Moyer. But there's probably a great deal going on in Irish literature that I just am not cognizant of. It is an endlessly productive country. And of course, I can't read Gaelic, so I don't know what is happening. Can you read Gaelic? Yes. Oh, I, I envy you. I'm too old now to learn. Yeats had no Gaelic. No. Joyce had some, but it was just a smattering. Beckett was something of a linguist. I never asked him. He probably had some. His French was better than his English, and his English was perfect. Um, I don't think Oscar had any Gaelic, did he? No. I know Casey certainly had no Gaelic. Underrated now. Mm. Two marvelous players. The Plow and the Stars and the Shadow of a Gunman. I'm not so sure about Juno and the Peacock, but... And one of the other, but the one called Drums Under the Window. Holds on in my mind. Interesting fellow. Except for his absurd Stalinism. In those, in those days in the, in the White Horse in, yeah. in New York. Yes, where I first met Dylan Thomas. He would come and drink there. And there was, of course, Buck Mulligan, the reprehensible Buck, still bitter about Joyce, very bitter, because that was his immortality, and he knew it, to forever be the Buck. Yeats loved him. Somebody had to. Not a lovable man at all, certainly not when I knew him. Dark and bitter. Amazing that a people as small, of course, most of the Irish here in this country there must be more Irish Americans than there are Irish in Ireland as such. We must have about 20 million at least. It's reckoned, I think, about 40 million. 40 million, yes. There can't be more than, what, 10 million people in Ireland? Five, six million. Counting the North? Mm-hmm. Yes. Just six million. Mm. So they're all here, really. <laughs> yes. Sad that except for Eugene O'Neill, what else have they produced here, let me think, in terms of literature? O'Neill remains our strongest dramatist, though there are really only two plays, The Iceman Cometh and The Long Day's Journey, and tonight. 
what were your memories of, of Dylan Thomas meeting him in the White Horse? Oh, I liked him enormously. When he wasn't drunk, he was very sweet. He was very confused about a lot of things. And he broke one of my heart one day because I was sitting there with him and he recited what I still think is his best poem, an astonishing poem about the death of a little, think of today, the death of a little girl in the Nazi fire raids on London. Never until the mankind making bird, beast, and flower can't recite it the way he could. Fathering and all humbling darkness is come of thee still hour and the seeds humbling and harness and I must enter again the round Zion of the water bead and the synagogue of the ear of corn shall I let pray the shadow of a sound or sow my salt seed in the least valley of sackcloth to mourn the majesty and burning of the child's death I shall not murder the mankind of her going with a grave truth, nor blaspheme down the stations of the breath with any further elegy of innocence or youth. Deep with the first dead lies London's daughter, robed in the long friends, the grains beyond age, the dark veins of her mother, Secret by the unmourning water of the riding Thames. After the first death, there is no other. For a long time, after loving him as a youth, I went away from the poetry. But in old age, I've come back to it. And that one in particular haunts me all the time. I guess I'm burned out, children, so we should end. Harold Bloom, thank you so much. No, thank you, children. That's it from us. Sarah Binchy produced tonight's programme from all of us. Good night.